Hello and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris de Blasio. Thank you, Brian. Once again, the Greatest Games Podcast, the chance for us to catch up with basketball coaches from around the country and have them tell us about their greatest game. It can be their time as a head coach, a JV coach, an assistant coach, just any time during their career and what game they consider to be their greatest game. Well, we have a doozy of a guest and a doozy of a game coming up today on the Greatest Games Podcast. We're stepping into Tennessee for the first time to Memphis, Tennessee, the strength and conditioning coach for Memphis University, Darby Rich. Welcome to the Greatest Games. Thank you, guys. Look forward to uh, visiting about this game and have enjoyed the conversation already. Well, for those who don't know, we always talk about it when we have our friends on. Darby Rich worked with us at the University of South Carolina for two years, and he's been a longtime friend and mentor. And uh, it's really exciting to have him on the show. We're going to try to keep it clean. When Darby and I get together, it doesn't always stay that way, but we're going to try. Well, we, we, we have the, the uh, technology of the dump button, so if it doesn't get clean, we can, <laughs> we can clean it up a little bit. We're just going to have a good time and hear, hear all about uh, Darby and his journey. And like I said, this, this game that's coming up on this show is an absolute doozy. Can't wait to get to that. Darby, first, why don't you take us uh, through your resume and kind of how you got to where you are now, professionally? Uh, it's, for a strength coach, it's kind of a different route. I started out in basketball. I played at, at Alabama back in the Wimp Sanderson days. Uh, wasn't very good, but played on some good teams with some good players, Robert Ory, Latrell Sprewell, some guys like that. Uh, got my co first uh, coaching job at Hutchinson Community College in Kansas. Uh, from there, still as a basketball coach, went to Sam Houston State University. And it was there that I had the opportunity to go do a strength and conditioning internship with the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, and with that in my pocket in the playing and coaching career, uh, kind of set out on a new path. Uh, Dave Odom hired me to come to South Carolina where I hooked up with you guys and from there went to uh, Oklahoma to work for Kelvin Sampson. Stayed there uh, with Jeff Capel when he got the job after uh, was there with Blake Griffin. When uh, Blake turned pro, I actually went out and did a year gig with Anthony Kim on the PGA Tour and missed the team aspect of strength, conditioning, and coaching and got back into it at Texas A&M with uh, Billy Kennedy and was there eight years until he was unfortunately let go a year ago and uh, was fortunate that uh, Penny had a spot and uh, – I wasn't on the market long before he got me and brought me to Memphis. So kind of a different route, but uh, it's been a good one nonetheless. It's a super different route and super unique. And I'm certainly curious. I'm going to jump right here with a quick question here, Darby, about coaching basketball and then making that switch to strength and conditioning. And then obviously the, the, the PGA experience with Anthony Kim had to be fascinating. But what, what was it about making the switch from coaching basketball now to making the switch to strength and conditioning that really drew you in? You know, it was, it was more of a, uh, a necessary evil at the time. When I went to, uh, to Hutchinson, uh, Juco, we didn't have a strength coach, obviously. And me being the youngest guy on the staff, uh, I actually worked for Steve McLean, who's now Tom Crean's assistant at uh, 
at Georgia who just uh, was at UIC as their head coach. Uh, he put me in charge of our strength conditioning. And then when I got to Sam Houston, similar thing, small D1, only one strength coach for all varsity sports. And so I kind of, you know, I was helping in the weight room a lot just so we had someone else in there. And so I never really intended to, but when the strength, <clears throat> excuse me, when the strength strength coach that was at Sam Houston uh, left, he went to the Dallas Cowboys and he knew I was going to be in the weight room. And so when this internship opened up, it was more of a chance just to go up there to learn a little bit more of the why and not just, you know, walk in, hand out sheets, spot guys. And so when I went, it was more to learn so I could go back and apply it and still be an assistant coach who was going to be in the weight room. And the strength coach for the Dallas Cowboys at the time, Joe Jurassic, had some foresight. And this, you know, we're 2001, 2002 now. Uh, that strength conditioning, especially on the basketball level, was going to take off in a way that, you know, the NBA teams were going to have their own guys, the high majors were going to have their own guys. And, you know, he was, you know, with the idea that, Darby, with your background as a, as a player, a coach, and now this, you'll pretty much be able to write your own ticket. And to be honest, at the time, it came down to I was a single guy. Do I want to live in Huntsville, Texas at Sam Houston or Dallas, Texas with the Cowboys? And that seemed to interest me more. And uh, so we decided to try that route. And, you know, sure enough, two years later, started on my journey this way. It's been good because I, you know, I get to keep my, you know, get to keep my feet in both worlds. And, uh, you know, it's just been a neat, a, a neat journey. Uh, you mentioned uh, Joe Jurassic, and you and I have talked about about him in your time with the Cowboys. Talk some more about some of the mentors you've had and what they've been to you. I've, I've met, I had the chance to meet Bob Marlin, who you worked for at Sam Houston State when we went down there. And just talk about some of those guys along the way and what they've taught you. You know, I, I think first and foremost, as far as strength conditioning goes, uh, and Wimp is obviously, I played for Wimp Sanderson at Alabama. Wimp has and more so later in life has become a great mentor. But at, at Alabama, we had a strength coach named Rocky Colburn. And uh, it's not like today's world. Like he was football's number one assistant coach and, you know, basketball was kind of assigned to him. And, but he made a tremendous impact on our teams. We won three SEC tournaments while I was there. I think we won more games than anybody on the, in the league, including Kentucky during that time, because they had the one dip year after Sutton, Patino's first year. Uh, but he made a tremendous impact on our team, uh, not just physically, but mentally. And so when, when it came about time to make a, you know, a decision on whether we were going to go into strength conditioning or, or stay into coaching, uh, you know, I kind of thought back to how big an influence that, that Rocky had had on, you know, not just myself, but the guys I played with. And, you know, I kind of felt like if I can have that kind of impact on guys' lives and, you know, that may be a better path, even though I'm probably – I'll never make as much money as I will coaching, uh, you know, you just have more day-to-day -day impact, you know, 300 and – you know, you say 365, but probably 345 days a year, you know, you've got some kind of contact with your guys. And in coaching, you don't always have that because of recruiting and – you know, just times of the year where they can't 
had their hands on the guy. Uh, you know, moving on, uh, Steve McLean was obviously he he hired me at at Hutch and uh, you know with no experience at all except as a player, turned me loose as a full time assistant, put me in charge of out of state recruiting, on the floor coaching, strength conditioning. It's just kind of one of those deals where you just get buried in work and you sink or swim. And uh, you learn how to do a lot of things for yourself so that when you do end up at a South Carolina or Oklahoma or, you know, wherever, you know, you know how to wear a lot of hats. And even though you don't have to, you know, wear them that often, it, it comes in handy. Uh, Kelvin Sampson was obviously a great and still is a great mentor of mine. Uh, just in terms of the way I want to go about doing things and, and being the no nonsense, uh, hard nose every day, but still care and, uh, you know, put your heart into what you're doing. And then obviously, uh, you know, Billy Kennedy at, uh, at A&M, one of the greatest people I've ever been around. And then I didn't know Penny at all, uh, until he hired me and brought me in. Uh, but it's been really fun getting to, to know a guy like him, uh, it took me about 15 minutes into my interview to realize that he had that laser focus that when you watch Michael and, and Kobe and those guys interview sometimes and they you, you start going, wow, that's why they are who they are. And I, you could see that in him. I mean, I'm literally sitting in my interview thinking, this is like watching those, those Kobe-Michael interviews that you see on ESPN. Darby, you talk about the impact that you're able to have, and it's fascinating. You and I were speaking, it had to be 2003, 2004 after a practice. I just came over to, to watch USC practice at the time, and you said something to the effect of that fatigue makes you soft. And I was, I was stunned by that. I was coaching my first coaching job, and I'm like, man, I need to – I was coaching girls at the time. I need to start working with my girls harder in the weight room, that type of deal because fatigue makes you soft. So it's been fascinating having this show and being able to call on those, those types of conversations that you had an impact on me as a young coach. And so you talk about that impact on the kids that you have now and throughout your career. So I still think we have some coaches that don't believe in strength and conditioning as being a, an integral part in, in, in this case, basketball training. So can you talk more about that impact that you've have had over the years on kids and just really the changing of the game that strength and conditioning has, has caused? Well, you know, you're trying to have an impact in two ways, <clears throat> you know, where obviously the one you're talking about, the physical impact, you know, I think the, the the nature of the culture right now is kids are soft. Uh, you know, they're not as tough as they used to be. Uh, I don't know that you can make soft kids tough. And I do think the generation, I don't know if it's soft, but it's definitely different. Uh, but I, I'm not a big believer without some things happening in their lives that, that you know, steals their fiber a little bit that you can make soft kids tough. But what you can through strength conditioning is if a kid has quit in them, uh, the stronger they are, the better condition they are. You move that quit button farther down the line. And so if you got a kid that normally would quit at the 20-minute mark, you get him strong enough to where he doesn't give in and quit until the 26, 28-minute mark, then – you bought yourself eight more minutes. Now, whether it be football, basketball, it doesn't matter. 
you know, at some point you hope they cross a line where they become that kid that's not soft, that's just mentally tough. But the ones that just are never going to go there, the, the better in shape they are, the stronger they are, uh, you can at least push that, that quick line uh, just for something people can maybe see. You know, push it farther down the line. Uh, and then, you know, from a, from a personal standpoint, you know, we just try to, you know, impact these kids. You know, it's, it's very – it's honestly, it's very rare that definitely a week, sometimes days don't go by where I don't hear from a former player, whether it be one of my kids from Hutch, uh, you know, a kid from South Carolina, Oklahoma. Uh, you know, it's really neat to watch what they've done with their lives, especially the guys that aren't, you know, didn't make it in the NBA. And people don't know their names anymore. Uh, but they have great families. They've become great fathers, you know, holding down good jobs. And, and you know, they look back and, and, and a lot of the discipline in their lives is, as men now came from being a collegiate athlete, you know, not just from myself, obviously, but from you know, the group of men or women or whoever helped cultivate them during those formative years. That's, that's a terrific answer, and it's, it's so very true. I like that, pushing the quit down, down the line. I really like that. I'm going to use that at some point. Um, one thing, Darby, you, you've done, and we, we have a lot of young coaches that listen to this show, is it seems like, especially in your early life, early career, you didn't limit yourself. And this is not to say people that stay in one place are better or worse off, but you were from the upstate of South Carolina, went to school in Alabama, and then took your first job out in the middle of Kansas, and then took a job in East Texas where, where you know, I was there with you one time. There's nothing there in East Texas. You right. know, talk about, you know, taking advantage of an opportunity professionally even if you feel like, you know, as a young guy, you're like, oh, it's not going to be that great personally. I'm going to be living in, you know, Huntsville, Texas or whatever. But taking advantage of professionally and not limiting yourself to, like, where you're going to be. No, I think that's huge. And I think it's huge in coaching. It's huge in strength conditioning. You know, this is something that, that we beat around a lot, especially guys that have, you know, really made it in the business. And you see these kids that they graduate, you know, they got their degree. Some of them did GAs or whatever it you know, high major institutions and not just in, you know, in the, in the field of athletics, but, you know, kids want to go into the job market where I can't take this, but I'm not making 60, $80,000, you know, right out of the gate. And I mean, to me, that's crazy. You know, my first year at Hutch, I lived in the dorm with the players and ate in the cafeteria. Uh, that was my check. My second year, I did the same thing. And I think I got a $600 stipend for teaching a remedial English class. Uh, you know, my first year at Sam Houston, uh, I made less than $30,000. And, you know, this, this comes up all the time, you know, experience is, is the key. And your first few years, especially, you know, I sometimes get it with some of these guys that got married early, uh, have a family, you know, they may need the money, but I can promise you, you know, right now uh, we're we're looking to hire a, a strength coach for our women's basketball team, and every single uh, resume that you look at, you're just looking for experience. You know, you're not looking for 
degrees or certifications, you know, who's got experience actually working with kids and coaches and building relationships. And so anytime you get a chance to, to grow your resume in terms of experience is way more important down the line than, you know, your first job paying you what you think you, you, you should earn. That's a theme that keeps coming up on this show, Darby. And I'm glad you hit on it again, because it's just, that's, that's our experience. Us three guys here. We've, we've all taken jobs that I, my first job, I, well, I don't want to give the actual amount. It was, I was offered less than $15,000 a year to teach and coach. It was, it was let, and I was I couldn't say yes fast enough. It was like, I'm going to be teaching and coaching and get, like you say, getting that experience. And then it's just, it's, it's such a huge lesson. You're right. People, there are different situations, but man, oh man, I'm so glad I took that job. I'm so glad I came back to USC and it is just, anyway, it's just the experience has just been so, so key. So I, I love that you hit on that. Well, and, and not only that, uh, Rose, but it's the people that you work for, you go in and you bust your tail. They're the people that are going to help you get the next job. You mm-hmm. know, they want you to come in and work for nothing and bust your tail all the time for nothing. So it's easy for them to pick up the phone and make a call when it is time to go get paid and they don't mind putting their neck out for you. Like, you know, I've had interns that, that I won't make a call for. And, you know, they did the minimum amount to get through the internship. But then I've got guys that I would, you know, get in my car and drive to talk to somebody for them. And so, you know, you, you go, you go get the experience you can and then you bust your tail because in the end, it's going to be whoever's willing to pick up the phone and put their neck out on the line for you. That's going to be how you take the next step. That's right. That's right. Darby, the name of the podcast is the greatest games podcast, as you know. So at this point in time, and we've already gotten tipped off about the game that you're going to tell us about, but I can't wait to hear your side of the story with as much background information as you can tell us and just get us in that arena and tell us about your greatest game. Well, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it'd be hard to say it's not. It's definitely the most uh, exciting game, or I think even today it's still the greatest comeback in NCAA basketball history. But we're going to talk about the 2016 Texas A&M Northern Iowa second-round NCAA tournament game. Uh, to, to put it in a nutshell, we were down 12 points with 33 seconds left on the clock came back and tied it in regulation, uh, end up having to tie it twice at the end of the first overtime and end up kind of pulling out at the end of the second overtime. But, you know, we were, you know, in, in preparation for this, uh, for this conversation that I went back and watched the end of the game last night to make sure I hadn't forgotten some things and, and looked at, uh, even pulled up Ken Palm to look at some of the stuff. And I guess with like, we literally were on the probability win scale at 0.1%, not even 1%, 0.1%, uh, you know, when that thing turned at the end and we were able to tie it up. So it was, it was, uh, I, I'm sure I'll never see another one where I'm sitting in the gym. Maybe there'll be one come along, but it's a pretty special night. Okay, Darby, uh, am I on here? Okay, sorry. I thought I, was, I thought I was muted. All right. So, Take us into uh, – let's go through that, the final minute in regulation. I've got it up here on video. You, you were subdued. You guys hit a three. You were still subdued. But then on the turnover, you guys get a dunk to make it 69-63. Finally, you stood up. 
So finally okay. we believed. <laughs> okay, so so you knowing me, De Blasio, I'm I'm not exactly the uh, the sit down type of guy. Uh, <laughs> And so, you know, as much as we want to say you believe, when you're down double digits inside a minute and <laughs> we really did not play well. Like Daniel Daniel House, who plays for the Houston Rockets now, was our best player. Uh, Alex Caruso, who everybody knows with the Lakers, was our starting guard. We had some good players. House didn't score a point until, the I think, the 5-14 mark of the second half. And he ended up with 23 points. So he had a pretty good, you know, 15 minutes. Uh, but it was just it, it was one of those nights where it just felt like it wasn't our night. We just, we, you know, a couple times in the second half, we cut it to eight, and you feel like, all right, now we're just going to take it on and finish it out because we were the better team. Uh, and it just, you know, then they would hit a three, or we would turn, you know, it's just one of those nights where you just, you're just like, it's not our night. And when it's NCAA tournament, not your night means it's over. Uh, so, you know, where, tell me where you want to take it. We get so we got the dunk, Blas. You got the dunk. You finally got up, and then you got. And I think it's House hits the three to make it sixty nine sixty six. And now, now it's on. I think that was the one. Now the whole bench is up and watching. You're up. Now you guys really believe it's a three point game with nineteen seconds to go. It is anybody's game at this point. Right. Well, what was interesting there is you you go down that whole sequence. We never one time during the end of that game like fouled and put them on the line. We were able to get them to turn the ball over on the baseline. And the one where House hit the three was actually inbounds pass they threw towards their corner and it went out of bounds so they no time ran off the clock. And then House hit a three, you know, just a step in three on the pass. And then we got two steals, uh, you know, right there on the baseline. And (laughs) – after one of them, uh, Jalen Jones, who ended up playing the NBA for a minute, still playing overseas, got caught in a switch, and we gave up a dunk during this time. So mm-hmm. it was, the game didn't really end on a 12-0 run. It ended up on a 14-2 run. And that dunk for a minute looked like it might be the backbreaker because it kind of, you know, changed the momentum. Uh, but we were able – Caruso got a, went down and got an and one to cut it, I think, to two right after that. and. Uh, and so then we had the final play where we, you know, they threw it in right in the coffin corner where you don't want to throw it in. And we had two guys start the trap with about eight seconds left. And, you know, if the kid would have just tucked the ball and, you know, not traveled, he could have ran out of time if we hadn't tied him up and got a jump ball or something. But he ended up. No, he threw it away. That's why I want to talk about that play. Yeah. He, your guy, you talk about not fouling. I don't know if that was something that was said in your huddle, your guys in that trap, they should show this at every coach's clinic on how to trap without reaching. Your guys get them, like you said, in the coffin corner, hands up, and they don't reach at all. They let him make the mistake, and he, he, you know, he can't figure out where to go, and finally he just chucks it out of the trap, and it's a turnover. I mean, yeah. it was a textbook double team. And I he don't know up. if you, you look at the start of that play, Trocia, Tony Trocia actually kind of reached in you know, and I thought they were going to call a foul. Uh, yeah, that was the only like, half reach. Yeah. yeah. It's a pet peeve of mine anyway. You get guys in a great trap and they're going to give it to you and then somebody just gets, you know, over-aggressive and reaches in and gets a stupid foul. Uh, you know, I hate it to this day anywhere on the floor. But that that was 
a great trap. And, uh, you know, fortunately it, it turned out the way it did. He tried to, you know, it's falling out of bounds. He, you know, rares back to try to throw it down. Admon steps back to, so it doesn't hit off his leg and go out of bounds and it pop right up in his hands. And he takes one dribble and kind of weaves in and lays it up high on the glass and we're off to overtime. Those last 30, there's a couple of stats. I mean, this is, this, this whole game is just absolutely incredible. Like you're describing Darby, but the last 35 seconds, Northern Iowa commits four turnovers. None of them get past the half court line. All right. Texas A&M, you guys managed five twos, a three, and a free throw to complete a 14 to two run in 35, 33, 35 seconds. And we're going to, once we post this episode, Darby, we're going to put a link to, there's a wonderful YouTube video that, that condenses that last uh, few seconds, the last 33 seconds of the game and the overtimes into about a five minute clip. And it's right. just an absolute back and forth, back and forth. I mean, it's big play after big play after big play, even in the overtime. And even, I mean, Northern Iowa, the, it's, all this is fascinating to me. They they beat Texas, a very good Texas team, in the first first round, if I remember right. And now they're that's this is the Cinderella coming out of the Missouri Valley. Here they're about to beat Texas A&M. And then, well, wait a minute, not, not so fast. It was just unbelievable. But that run, like I said, those last 35 seconds, 14 to 2, absolutely incredible. Yeah, and it, it's one of those things, really, because we didn't foul. And you look at the turnovers, like it's it's kind of one of those. If any play changes, if anything goes different, you know, if they don't, you know, if somebody tips a ball and it doesn't go out of bounds, we don't win that game. I mean, we needed every second, and it's you know, I've you know, I've watched the end of that game probably 75 times now, especially with it, you know, all over social media every year during during the NCAA tournament. It was just so many things had to happen right for us and go wrong for them. And it's just one of those things where everything went right for us and wrong for them. And I'm glad I didn't have to go back to their locker room. <laughs> Brian talks about it. Uh, and we, we all know and love the NCAA tournaments for the upsets and, and those type of games. What was your preparation like? And that's interesting because you have the one-day preparation. So Northern Iowa beats Texas, upsets Texas, and then getting ready to play you guys. What is coach? What are the what is the coaching staff saying to your guys about you know, you know being prepared and not not falling for, not falling to the upset? But obviously respecting Northern Iowa as a good team. They've had a really good program for a long time. They've won a ton of NCAA tournament games over the last fifteen years. What's that preparation like in that one day? You know, it's a short prep because you can't, you know, you can't look ahead in the NCAA tournament. So uh, I think we played Wisconsin Green Bay in the first round. And, you know, it's just one of those teams where we just couldn't come in. And, I, you know, obviously you can't do it anyway. But, you know, you have to put everything into the game that's in front of you. And so you have a one-day prep because we were we – were quote, supposed to play Texas, there had been a lot of smoke, you know, obviously Texas, Texas A&M in the second round, you know, kind of one of those conspiracy theorists. They're putting it together. You know, it was only a couple years after we left the Big 12. Uh, you know, we actually had played them early in the year in the Bahamas. Uh, but there was a lot of smoke about if Texas and A&M, uh, you know, win – they're going to play in the three six game, and so when and Northern Iowa actually hit us like a sixty footer to beat Texas. Uh, it was the last second heave, and 
So a lot of that, especially I think every kid on our roster but one was a Texas kid. So they had heard all week, you're going to play Texas, you're going to play Texas. And I don't know that there was a letdown, but, you know, there's just that, that natural, you know, we're not, we're not getting to play Texas, we're not having to play Texas. Uh, but Northern Iowa was a good, really good team. They had senior guards. I think uh, they, they had started out the season like 11-10 and 10, and then had won 14 out of their last 15 games, uh, beating Wichita State two or three times. Uh, and, you know, they just – they came out and played well. Uh, House was not very good for us, who we needed to – you know, we just – we he was so key for us and just had one of those nights where – you know, I think he was trying too hard. Fortunately, Caruso had, I think, 25 for the game was the highest game of his career. And he stepped up to keep us in it. And then, you know, House obviously got hot late. But, you know, it's just one of those things. It's hard in the NCAA tournament. You play you play good teams with senior veteran guards. And if you play bad, you're going home. And we were just fortunate enough to barely dodge a bullet that night. This is super fascinating. You're right. You're dead on the money about um, their run, Northern Iowa's run through the Missouri Valley. They beat Wichita State, who was number one in their league. Evansville was number two in Southern Illinois, who was number four in their league to win that conference tournament. And so we've we've had Brett Carey, who's at Indiana State now, in the Missouri Valley. We've had him on this show. And that's really, really good basketball. And so it's just fascinating to see, like, almost, again, back to the Cinderella thing. It's just Cinderella's time just ran out with 35 seconds to go. I mean, they run run through that tournament, beat Texas, and they're beating you guys. I mean, I'm even looking at the stat line here, Darby. I mean, Texas A&M shoots 44% from the field, 7 of 31 from the three-point line. Uh, 20, that's 22%, 67% from the free throw line. That's a game that really the teams don't win. And here you are just – miraculously again I know we keep just keep talking about it but just able to come back and win this game absolutely incredible yeah I mean it was I and I picked this up last night because I didn't remember this stat but I guess in the first half we scored 22 points shooting 22 percent from the floor and you know that's with three NBA guys on the floor we just it's just it just was not our night until it was and so take us into the locker room after the game What's the celebration like? Not only do you win the game, you get to the second weekend, which is very special when you're in the NCAA tournament. Take us into the locker room after that game. Uh, it's no doubt. And I've been in some – I've been fortunate enough to be in some uh, some pretty fun locker rooms over the years, both as a player and a coach for, for what – you know, whether it be championships or just big wins. Uh, the – exuberance in that locker room that night after literally being dead and not only like losing a game, but you're losing your last game. So the season's over, you know, losing is hard, you know, during the season anyway, but when you lose the one that means the balls and jerseys are going up for another year, that one's really hard. And to go from literally they're about to screw the screw, the screws in the coffin to going to the next weekend, getting to play Oklahoma, uh, you're just so happy for those kids. And as a strength conditioning coach, you know, you, you look at it, we didn't play well, but in a, in a, you know, you have the biggest comeback in NCAA history. Then you have to play two more overtimes to finish it. And there was so much, you know, and a lot of it's because you won, but our guys could have played 30 more minutes after that. They were so fired up. Uh, 
But to watch them in the locker room from the guys that played, I think House played 47 minutes to the walk-ons who never took off their top. I mean, it was just pure joy. Uh, it was, it's a night I will never, ever forget. And, and, and outside of, you know, the births of my two boys, I don't know that I'll ever be that happy again unless I'm able to cut one down at the Final Four. All right, Coach, uh, this is a question we like to end all our podcasts with, and you are a talker, and you have lots of sayings and phrases, so I'm hoping we'll get a good one here. If I asked a, a kid who played for you at Sam Houston or South Carolina, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and I asked a kid who played for you this year at Memphis, what's the one thing they would say Coach Rich says over and over and over again? I know you have some. I know you got plenty of them, that's for sure. I know, but – I think it, it's funny, Blas, because Precious Achua said some NBA guys have asked him that question about specifically me, and he wasn't even able to give them an answer because I think over the years I've gotten where I try not to just hammer on one thing. So, I, I honestly, I don't know anymore what uh, what that would be, and I know that screws up your final question, but uh, – you know, I, I just don't have a, a saying that, that that I go to like that anymore. What did you have? Is there something you know. tried to get rid of? Not not necessarily. I just, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I guess maybe we need another great final question, but I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't even tell you what it is. All right, if you have a piece of advice that we haven't talked about maybe for a young coach, Basketball coach, football coach, strength coach, someone who wants to get into coaching and helping young people. What's a, what's one piece of advice? You know, my my biggest piece of advice to, to people wanting to get into coaching is, you know, don't do it for the money because, you know, there everybody knows how much money the top guys in the business make, whether it be in the NFL, in college, or whatever. Uh, but there's more people impacting lives of these kids at the high school level you know, at the, the low low major or D2 level that, that don't make a lot of money. You have to love what you do because even the guys who make a ton of money, you know, they're, they're putting in countless hours. A lot of it's taken away from family time. And you really, really have to love what you do. You have to love being around kids and you have to be willing to, to give your heart to them every single day. And if you can't do that, and you're not willing to do that, then, you know, coaching is not the job for you. I think that's such great advice, Darby. We had episode 27, Pat Gabriel at Ramapo College up in New Jersey. Um, it's a division three and uh, you, you just hit on it. Like you just gotta, gotta really believe, you gotta understand that you're having a huge impact on kids at whatever level. And he's talking about traveling around the Northeast and doing the things that they're doing at the division three levels, having just as much impact as, as you are at the division one level. And it's all about, yes, we all want to win. We all want to be a part of unbelievable games like you're describing here, but at the end of the day, like what are we doing to make this world a little bit better place and, and be able to do it through working with kids. Like it's just a, it's an absolute privilege to be able to do it on any level. And, uh, Again, I just, I just love that answer. Darby, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on The Greatest Games. We know that uh, Memphis has a great Twitter account, uh, University of Memphis Basketball, Memphis underscore MBB. Anything else that you'd like to tell us about going on up there at Memphis right now that you'd like to promote? 
No, I'm not much of a self-promoter. I just uh, I love what you guys are doing, and I, I hope it takes off. And if I can help out in any way, then, uh, you know, you can always reach out to me. We can do another game. We can do a Matt Cradell, the Chris de Blasio show. <laughs> <laughs> Retrospective. Anyway, I think what you guys are doing is important. I like the fact that it's not just the same people that we see on TV every night and, and on ESPN every day that, you know, you're reaching out to to coaches and because a lot of the best games that are ever played, nobody will ever know about it except the ones that were in the gym. So I think that's really important. That's right. That's just spot on. We need to record that soundbite as a promo. We might even hire you, Darby, as our PR guy. That was fantastic. So but we'll go ahead and put a button on this episode for my co-host, Chris de Blasio. I'm Brian Rosefield, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Greatest Games. 